Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens. This is part two of the interview with Melissa Kahneman-Taylor and Mariana Soto-Manning, who are co-authors of the book Teachers Act Up. In part two, they're going to share some fantastic games with us to use in the classroom and talk about how theater of the oppressed uh, leads to joy and freedom and democracy. Yeah, yeah. So this um, teaches you something about your your own teaching, um, you know, when you're um, being the joker and the facilitator of these uh, workshops. So what is something that you've learned recently uh, from doing this that has um, transformed your own teaching practices? I'll see, this is Misha again. Uh, I play this game that I just love called This Is Your Blanket or This Is My Blanket. And it's mm-hmm. a very simple game where you have a piece of cloth or any object really and you identify it as for what it is. Let's say it's a piece of cloth and you identify it as a blanket. And the first person starts and says, this is my blanket. And you pass it to the next person. And the next person says, this is your blanket. And they hold it the, the way the person held it in, in the beginning. And they transform the object. But this is my, and sometimes wow. I'll have rules like it can, it, if I'm teaching language and we're studying a particular unit, it can be clothing. But sometimes mm-hmm. I say, stay away, stay away from the obvious, stay away from hats and scarves and T-shirts and blouses and um, bikinis and try to think of something that's not clothing. And then all of a sudden, this is your blanket, but this is my airplane or this is my refrigerator or this is and you, mm-hmm. this, this simple piece of fabric. I cannot tell you how many times I have played that game. It's the easiest game. I play it at the dinner table with my children. You can play it with a, uh, I played it in an auditorium in Mexico on a stage for hundreds of people. And I had selected 10 participants mm-hmm. out of the audience to play it. I am endlessly teaching and reteaching myself the joy of being surprised by what, by the unknown student productions. Does that make sense? I want to see yeah. what can students do that I have not planned in advance, that I, that where, where we can surprise mm-hmm. each other and, and make each other laugh or ooh and ah with the intelligence, yeah. the deep intelligence that each person has access to if given the creative invitation to make that yeah. offering. That is, that is something I, I'm continually relearning through this process. Yeah, that reminds me of the what are you doing game where someone does an action and passes it on. Like if I'm pretending I'm brushing my teeth, the person next to me would say, what are you doing? And I'll say, I am uh, making tortillas. Uh, That came out. And then they make the tortillas and then the next person, you know, they uh, mimic that. And then the next person asks, what are you doing? And, and on it goes. And I've used that. Uh, our living wage campaign on campus has had uh, um, ESL classes for hourly staff and, and landscapers in particular um, who requested it. And doing that with them was uh, especially for folks who can barely say hello to those who are more in- intermediate level, all in the same circle. Has, has uh, You find out a lot of cultural things. Um, which is mm. one of the 
that's in the culture circles, um, Mariana, and um, that that you work on. And I want to kind of move into that. But uh, this blanket game, I'm totally stealing this idea for my next class <laughs> in the fall. Um, I know uh, so, we have to have so, some. Um, some re some encounters soon. I would say a couple of things <laughs> about um, just um, in terms of um, my learning and my change. I'm more and more attuned to my use of language. So, for mm -hmm. example, I realized how if I say, for example, um, if you are cisgender across the room, um, mm -hmm. it's putting someone in a situation where they may not want to be. So, working with teachers, I have been um, really more careful in terms about if you publicly and openly identify as um, so that the person does have a certain level of control of what the person's comfortable disclosing yeah. which brings me yeah. to my next um, which is really thinking about how is it that we actually see progressions of power shuffle as people become more aware so I don't mm. do power shuffles anymore as a one-time game, mm. but really mm. thinking about as a thermometer of our awareness of the privileges that we embody situationally uh, mm. across time and space. Um, and then um, I think that part of it is really thinking about um, sometimes um, people forget how um, oftentimes professors are not prepared to teach. Um, they get um, PhDs, they get doctorates, and they start mm -hmm. teaching. So I have been using more and more of the um, theater techniques, um, theater of the oppressed forum, theater image, theater games, as a way of preparing teacher educators to work with teachers. Because mm -hmm. lecturing about constructivism is not going to be very effective, <laughs> yet we don't give teachers who are teaching about constructivism any tools to do so. So how is it that theater of the oppressed, the Boilean theater can serve as a critical pedagogy of teacher education for the preparation of teacher educators. And there are others who are doing research on these, including Janice Stuman, who is at the University of Colorado Boulder. So it's been fun to think and talk about it together as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, uh, so using these techniques uh, in the university classroom, um, at both UGA and at, at Teachers College Columbia, um, do you get from students, um, I don't know if you get as much in, in education classes as, as I get in my religious studies classes and human rights classes of, um, oh, well, I'm not taking 10 pages of notes, so is this really learning? You know, because of the, <laughs> you know, the, the system of learning from the neck up um, and from the sage on the stage. And that uh, um, sharing of uh, and, and dismantling of those power structures in, in some way um, by through this kinesthetic learning is just um, it disrupts in, in I think good ways. Uh, but some students are um, I mean I, I find I have to you know use theory to accompany these things because students aren't convinced that it's real learning. You know, they'll say, well, we're just yep. playing games. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to connect it with Absolutely. content uh, in my classes. So if if you could say something about how you're, uh, you do it so wonderfully in the book, um, you know, taking uh, the reader through 
uh, Gustav Boal's theories, um, uh, and then showing you know how this actually works with um, with teachers uh, and and teacher training. Um, you know, if you could talk more about you know how you make those connections um, and and get folks in you know fully involved in the in the workshops. I think reading is absolutely essential and if you and you and also writing and taking time to make the connections because it's easy for those of us that have done this work for so long to we've already assimilated the power of being in our bodies and making almost um, you know ongoing connections to between the reading and the doing but that's not a natural process so I I'm turning more and more. I'm so glad that Mariana talked about the gender studies and um, mm -hmm. sexual orientation. And that to me is an incredible opening. You know, I turn often to Judith Butler's work, Gender Trouble, Feminism, uh -huh. and the Subversion of Identity, because we're all, mm -hmm. the, the work is all about understanding and subverting identities as they are. Uh, as we co-construct them, to see them not as necessarily given. Uh, there's nothing static about an identity. It changes and it's fluid. However, yeah. it can be made to become and appear static. And uh, there are reasons for this. There's a great human traditions of passing on um, re religious identity. And of course, gender identity and ethnic and linguistic identities, those are all um, carrying on traditions of human life and we find ourselves in a profound earthquake of shifts of what is and what yeah. we can be is not not limited by what's on our birth certificate in terms of mm -hmm. national citizenship or language of origin nothing is and, and gender and mm -hmm. and so to really grasp that I'll never forget the first time I experienced an earthquake in Los in Mexico City. I think it was my first one. Mm -hmm. It's profoundly troubling when the ground beneath you isn't still. You know, when you can't trust that what. But to learn to be comfortable with 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 uncertainty, to learn to um, be prepared for the shaking. I guess that's mm -hmm. the best work I feel I can do in teacher education. Uh -huh. To know that every given has an alternative story and that no one should be locked into the stories of their birthright, you know. Yeah. And, and these things come with deep reading and, and interactions between the body and the mind. I don't think we can ever forsake one or the other, but too long education has been stuck in the mind only. The seated desk, uh, yeah. the reading and the assessment, and, and, and we're missing you know more than half the picture if we if we limit education that way yeah so you're, you're talking about an embodied story and culture-centered learning here that mm -hmm. that values and raises that up so within the context of um, teachers college and teachers college is only a graduate school of education so um, I feel that um, there are a couple of things that I try to do um, right away to situate this work um, instead of assuming that students will find it legitimate. First, I invite them to think about what they remember about teaching or about learning. 
-hmm. For example, I may ask if it's a class on early childhood education, what they remember about first grade. What's that one moment that sticks in their memory? And it's never about learning how to write the letter A or a certain word. It's about how a teacher or how a peer made them feel, how they experienced, how they embodied something. So really, as a way of making sure that they understand that all learning is embodied, whether we recognize it or not. Yeah. whether we our bodies are disciplined in desks or whether they're moving mm-hmm. and really thinking about how we are going to engage in this work to openly and purposely um, break through fracture these um, separation this false separation between theory and practice mm-hmm. so we are going to practice and then i invite them to theorize from the practice theorize from what we're doing mm-hmm. so yes there are some readings that they do but then they engage in theater games, they engage in forum theater, they engage in theater of the oppressed. And in mm-hmm. doing so, how do they bring these two together as a way of theorizing in practice and theorizing from practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the bodies are the one or the are the things that uh, bridge the divide between um teachers and with the teachers with their theory and practice that they bring. Um, So teaching strategies uh, we've talked about, how does this um, uh, translate into a curriculum for for teacher education? Uh, What kind of difference does this make uh, with the curriculum? Because there's, you know, there's certain tests teachers have to pass and, you know, how do you, negotiate uh, that terrain? Um. In, increasingly in my world, I'm, I'm working with teachers of world languages, TESOL and uh, Spanish, French, German, Latin. And I have uh, a new exciting relationship to a practice called teaching proficiency through reading and storytelling, TPRS. Mm-hmm. And it's fundamentally about comprehensible input but doing so that in a way that incorporates the body, that gives uh, the student and the teacher shared gestures to, mm-hmm. um, to coincide with new lexicon until it's, you know, until it's in the, in the mind unconsciously, you, you use the body. So for example, caminar or walk, you would say caminas, you know, you would use the word and you would maybe, trickle your fingers down your forearm at the same time so that you're Mm -hmm. reinforcing the the new vocabulary until you own it. Uh So this is all to say that the, this practice not only is using embodied gestures to teach language, but also collaborative and improvisational storytelling, even if it's very simple language, Uh it's fundamentally about teaching key verbs and, you know, who likes Coke and who doesn't like Coke or who has an iPhone 10 and who doesn't have and who wants one. And these can turn into really funny moments where the students can add a bit of unexpected uh, turn in a story. Um, You know, for example, who wants the iPhone? Sarah wants the iPhone. Will Jesse, give the iPhone to Sarah or not? And this is like building tension with very few (laughs) words. Mm -hmm. So I find I'm teaching a class called Theater for Reflective Language Practice. 
in the world language and the PSOL classroom. And I do a merger of teaching Boalian theater style, improv theater techniques, and this these TPRS um, methods as a way of engaging language learners, not in the kind of the, the burden of trying to memorize new language, but trying to use it to edutain one another, you know, to use use the language, listen to the language, repeat uh, language, because we know that learners need lot, loads and loads of repetition. So I find that theater and the field that I'm in of teaching and learning second and additional and global languages is really a, a wonderful match. Yeah. 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 And uh, Mariana, you um, in one of in one of your co-written books, you use something that I thought was quite lovely with um, K through two uh, students. Mm -hmm. uh, the the name storybooks. Oh yeah. Where they have to tell the story of their names. Uh, would you yes. say something about that and and some other of the techniques that you use for for the storytelling? Absolutely. So both in terms of storytelling as well as um, in terms of um, theater techniques. These are not add-ons, but they're embedded throughout. So they actually um, add complexity and depth to the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it's really a way for teachers to try out new things. So trying out new things, for instance, is the case for the name stories where Jessica Martel and I work together to really center family knowledges and the teaching. Because there is a lot that teachers talk about valuing families, but valuing families often starts um, or stops uh, outside of the classroom door, um, and it doesn't fully enter the curriculum. So we wanted to recenter the curriculum um, and firmly center the knowledges, the values, the stories that the students had, that their families had. So inspired by Susie Long, who's at the University of South Carolina and her work, we started asking children, because actually of the Common Core State Standards at the time um, and how children were supposed to be engaging in primary source research, um, we invited them to interview a family member about the story of their name. And that information then entered the classroom and became the material from which they wrote pieces about their own name stories, how they got their name. Yeah. In doing so, they were not only learning about writing, reading and writing, they were conducting research and they were learning about their families. Interestingly, at first, when teachers get started working with um, the name stories, children, or at least a child will say, but because, for example, Jessica would ask, um, who knows about your name story? And invariably, somebody would say, you know, because that's the right answer in a classroom. When the teacher asks, the teacher yeah. often knows the answer. Mm -hmm. And she has to say, actually, I don't. Um, you know, the person who knows my name story is my mom and my grandma who raised me. They yeah. know my name story. So think about who are the people who hold that special story and really in a way thinking about how is it that we improvise with the curriculum that we mm -hmm. rehearse change but not as a way of rehearsing proficiency in something that continues to propagate the status quo and inequities yeah. in teaching but yeah. as a way of shifting as a way of re-envisioning so really mm -hmm. thinking about how is it that that in a way was a rehearsal of a different pedagogy and it did 
embody lots of different um, theater techniques in a way, rehearsing how that was going to be presented to the families and to the principals, right, mm -hmm. in terms of placing outside of the classroom standards and communicating, you know, the curriculum that has been used in the school is not um, adequate to the kids because the kids in my class are so brilliant that they need more. Yeah. So we are going to the fourth grade standards. So it wasn't like, oh, the kids are, and this was a dual language classroom, so it was also a way of valuing children's language expertise so yeah. that they could go home and they could interview their family members in whatever language, whether it was Miss Teco, whether it was Spanish, whether it was English, or another language, Portuguese, okay. that year there was a child who spoke Portuguese in the language, and those all made back to the classroom as a way of enriching teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I do feel sometimes we underscore or we uh, don't fully value the uh, possibilities of rehearsing for revolution, rehearsing for change, when mm -hmm. we are so embedded in these um, practices that are problematic. So yeah. going back to actually your prior um, question to Nisha in particular, I use theater of the oppressed as teachers prepare for the FTPA because they have to pass the FTPA, which is a performance assessment in New York in order to obtain teaching licenses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't think that what they are supposed to be doing in the FTPA comprises good teaching, but they are rehearsing, mm -hmm. they're acting so that they can get through that hurdle and they can get to teach as opposed to yeah. actually coming to believe that that comprises good teaching. So it mm -hmm. is a way mm -hmm. of um, improvising and not just to enact whatever curriculum is given, but in a way to improvise and say, yes, there is this that's being mandated and I'm going to be doing something else. So it's not that Jessica did not teach what was expected of her, it's that she went beyond what was expected. Yes, um, so sort of practicing the yes and in, a, in another way. Um, As a way of engaging and redesigning curriculum and teaching, yes. Yes, and one in terms, you've talked a lot about power and authority structures in education. Um, one that, you know, shifts the power to that um, of learning and teaching where all are teachers and learnings, learners in a class so that students' uh, knowledge is valued and actually lifted up um, and, and their lives and cultural context are valued, uh, which I think is, is a really important part of uh, the work you've both done um, through storytelling and then to get back to Misha for a minute uh, through the use of poetry as a medium. Mm -hmm. Um, and you teach a class, uh, Writing Cultures, a poetry workshop for creative educators. Uh, would yes, you say yes. something about the use of, of poetry um, in uh, teacher education? Well, I, I, uh, so yes, I'm a poet. I came to my professorship with my chapbook, or a, which is a, a small book of poems, and I, I wanted my new potential colleagues to know what they were getting, that mm -hmm. they weren't just getting mm -hmm. someone trained in um, linguistics and education scholarship, but that I always have a foot in the arts. Mm -hmm. And when I was a new professor, I, I was very fortunate and had won some awards and um, had support to go back after yeah. a PhD and get uh, an MFA in, in poetry. And I feel that poetry, much like image theater, is really the compression of the 
what the most impact with the fewest amount of words to get to the essence of one's unconscious aesthetic knowledge that um, we can teach ourselves to move away from scripted um, phrases we hear and we sometimes absorb them unconsciously from the news media or um, even, you know, going back to the gender comment of we used to say cross the room if you identify as a man, if you identify as a woman. Now we know that that can be hurtful or it can be unfair. You know, it's yeah. now we have to respectfully pause and say if, if you're uh, comfortable acknowledging your ident gender identity, that we have new mm -hmm. awarenesses all the time. And if we look back at history, we can judge what we didn't know in in hurtful ways or we can see this as um making uh new meanings as we grow and develop as human cultures mm -hmm. together so the poetry for me is a kind of a a form of what i also get from exercising improv theater and boalian techniques which is mm -hmm. a kind of presence a presence to the moment an awareness mm -hmm. and um, a way of suspending the controlling mind and allowing the unconsciousness to teach me what I need to know to continue mm -hmm. to be a, a better and more um, more aware and more joyful human being. Mm -hmm. I, as we're talking, I, I, I happen to see uh, an, a news release, another uh, devastating piece of news from the Washington Post about mm -hmm. um, funding being cut for um, immigrant uh, undocumented youth at the border. I mean, it's just it, it, the, the, the pain and the unethical behaviors at the highest levels of government are endless and, and they hurt and they can be, um, they can undermine any teacher's feeling that they can do anything successful or helpful in a system that can oftentimes feel like you're trapped. Yeah. The arts, poetry, music, dance, theater, mm -hmm. while they can they can bear witness to the pain and struggle, but they also give a kind of essential joy and meaning and and and, and the the muscle to persist and to know that we can still make beauty even within the midst of pain. That's my work as a poet, and that's what I try I, I try to remember that when teacher education. Yes, there's EdTPA and standards and tests, and we have to know the systems we're in. And in order to to make a difference, we have to navigate those systems. But we can also choose the arts, and mm -hmm. the arts can help us sometimes bear the the burdens of those same systems yeah. that we're we're wiggling through. Yeah. 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 And so, what do you say to you know? most college professors I know who um, are creative teachers, but to do theater of the oppressed would just almost be anathema. <laughs> you know, it's it's not part yeah. of their um, toolbox or or something. I mean, how how do you, you know, begin? And, and this for K through 12 teachers too, I, I'm assuming. Um, um, you know, how do you, how do you begin to lure people into this joyful work, mm -hmm. or the possibilities I, of in that? We I have um, 
a, a treasured poet in Georgia named Jericho Brown. He's so fantastic. And he, he's going to be reading in Athens on July 16th as a part of our Seat in the Shade series. Mm-hmm. And he said to me that someone, uh, he constantly, he's a, he's a marvelous poet. His poems appear in the New Yorker and mm-hmm. uh, the Atlantic, every, every fine literary and, and um, upstanding magazine where a poem might be found, he's in there. And he yeah. said, you know, a lot of people come up to me and they want, he likened it to playing court basketball. Everybody can play court basketball, but not everybody makes it to the NBA. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody, everybody can play the games, but if you're mm-hmm. going to take it seriously and become a, a difficultator or a facilitator, mm-hmm. it does require an additional investment because if you're, you're holding some very delicate uh, and very powerful tools, yes. but if they're not used, with care and with mm-hmm. some insight from practice and failing and, and practicing again and reflecting on that practice, you can do some damage. Mm-hmm. You can overreach with these techniques. I, so I do say, I don't say don't do it, but I say test it out. Try it with your uh, a family. Try it in a, in a small, mm-hmm. safe community. Make some mistakes, but have make the time to play and then reflect on those mistakes to learn and grow. It's not something that you you have a one time workshop and then all of a sudden you create a curriculum out of the theater. Right. It it just yeah. too much potential uh, failure for the the instructor and the students. And so in that sense, I say don't throw the baby with the bathwater. Don't throw out your traditional curriculum. Gentle yourself yeah. in. And, yeah. and and build in reflexivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good ad- good advice. And I was going to ask you about Joker training because it's um, I think it takes a lifetime from my own experience. I'm I'm not there yet, and I've been to many workshops. It it seems like every time I go, I'm like learning what I didn't know and what I need to know. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say that. Um, we live in an unfair world, and there are plenty of injustices. It feels that we uh-huh. unveil, we find injustices each and every day. And if we want to change what is, we need to come together to rehearse change. It's not uh-huh. always comfortable. Change is not comfortable because uh-huh. change requires giving up the known structures and the privileges in place. Yeah. But if we want our students to experience discomfort, we have to experience discomfort in our teaching. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean irresponsible discomfort. That means responsible, which means that theater of the oppressed and theater games can be a way of getting started, but they're not going to be the sole solution, and they do require an investment in terms of learning. It's recognizing that learning and learning to teach is a process, and we're always in process. We're always getting better. And mm-hmm. at the core of things, it's recognizing the need to learn as a teacher, as a professor, in order to change what is, but mm-hmm. also the need to embrace humility. And I always have this quote in my mind, um, which is in teachers, teachers as cultural workers, letters to those who dare teach. And mm-hmm. I don't know what page it is in the new edition, but in the first edition, it's on page 39, it says something about humility is about understanding that no one knows it all and no one is ignorant of everything. Yeah. So um, by doing that, by uh, defining humility in that way, um, I think that theater demands a collective humility, but it also demands collective responsibility, which means that the learning environment is not solely designed and facilitated or dificultated by 
the professor, that everyone becomes invested, actively invested in learning. And a lot of professors say, well, my students don't engage. It's like, well, perhaps yeah. we're not engaging in our teaching in a way that makes them want to engage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So is there, in, in our time is um, coming to an end here, unfortunately, um, is there anything that you, you're learning um, in, in recent years that you really has has really moved you forward uh, from this? You've named a lot of it, but is there anything you want to leave us with? Well, I'll say that my university is moving, as we all, maybe perhaps all are, towards more and more online instruction in that mm -hmm. neoliberal environment where we're all trying to get as many course credits in as quickly and uh, conveniently a way as possible. And I'm losing, um, I fear sometimes I'm losing the ability to do these in-person mm. workshops that really take a lot, to, a, a time that people don't have, time and presence that aren't always affordable. But I am a new learner and embracing what is possible online and mm -hmm. the new tools to try to um, to get to some of these places together, even if we're miles or you know worlds apart, that's mm -hmm. my new challenge. Is, is, you know, how can we engage with each other in online forums and still, you know, and deepen our connections as humans rather than um, erasing ourselves? I don't have the answers to that. I just know that yeah. some of these classes, I've heard some administration refer to my poem poetry and theater classes for educators as boutique classes. And mm. I hate that word. It means, it yeah. means it's uh, inessential, mm. you know, it's overpriced and mm. specialized and elitist. And that's the last thing I want mm. is I want democratic um, art for all. So yeah. that's my challenge. Yeah. 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 I would okay. say that the last thing that I would um, mention that I've learned within the past few years is the power of intergenerational mixed learning communities through theater, mm -hmm. bringing together teachers who have been teaching for 20 years and teachers who are in the process of becoming certified, together with community members, together with teacher mm -hmm. educators, yeah. and embracing the in-process nature of teaching and learning constantly, not entering that space as someone who has the expertise, but learning that space, entering that space as a co-learner. And mm. I feel that in a lot of ways, we don't open up enough spaces for university professors to be in process of learning about their own learning together with communities, of rethinking what we do, and that those spaces are not only helpful, they're imperative if we're going to continue to sustain our teaching in a way that honors the possible futures of our students. Yeah. Oh, what a good note to end on, uh, reaching out to the community and uh, for social change and democratic education. Thank you both so much for this conversation. Um, very inspiring and also, um, you know, holding, I think, us accountable for uh, taking those risks to create new learning spaces for ourselves and, and for others. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. 
You've been listening to an interview with Melissa Conman-Taylor and Mariana Soto-Manning, authors of Teachers Act Up that uses theater of the oppressed in the classroom. I'm Tina Pippen, your host, and I want to introduce my new team, well, old and new team, uh, for the podcast. Hi, I'm Channel Wilson, producer. I'm Aaliyah Harris, audio engineer. So thank you for listening. <laughs>